What comes to mind when I say the name St. Nicholas? St. Nicholas. Maybe a jolly fat man in a red suit, like the Coca-Cola Santa Claus from the 50s. Rosy cheeks with a bowl that jiggles like a bowl full of jelly, a belly that jiggles like a bowl full of jelly. Reindeer of the North Pole, maybe a Beach Boys song, the Little St. Nick. Well, most of these images are the product of our cultural tradition and marketing. But St. Nicholas was a real person. He is a real historical person that lived during a real piece of history. But who was the real St. Nick? Well, Nicholas of Myra, as he is known, if you look him up in history, was born around A.D. 260 in modern-day Turkey. He was born into a Christian family on the Mediterranean Sea in the area of Lycia. When you read Acts in the New Testament, you'll see that the Apostle Paul went into the region of Lycia. It's an area in modern-day Turkey on the south side of the country on the Mediterranean Sea. And Nicholas's family were wealthy merchants. And it's believed that his parents probably died pretty young uh, because we see Nicholas inherited a sizable inheritance fairly young. He was a Christian. And when he was a young man, he was confronted by a heartbreaking story. There was a family in the church where he lived, and the man had lost all of his money. He had lost everything, and he had three daughters. And if you know anything about the ancient world, when a, when a woman married, a dowry was expected to go with her. No dowry, no marriage. As you might imagine, that left a young woman in this time period with only one option apart from getting married, and that option was not something that a Christian woman could do. It's not an option, really, that any woman should do. And so the dad was heartbroken, and Nicholas was heartbroken as well. Desiring to help this family, but also not desiring to be known for helping them, Nicholas snuck out one night, in the dead of night. Now, depending on the stories that you hear, that you read, some people say it was one night, some people say there were three subsequent nights. But either way, Nicholas snuck out, middle of the night, found his way down the streets there in Lycia, and dropped enough money through the window of this family's home so that all three girls would have a dowry and all three girls could get married. So we find about the real St. Nick that he was benevolent and he gave anonymous gifts in the dead of night. But Nicholas would also go on to be a Christian minister. He became the bishop Amira, and he became the bishop right before one of the worst persecutions that the early church would ever experience. This persecution was ordered by the emperor Diocletian, and he ordered that all of scriptures, all the Christian scriptures in the churches be burned. There were pastors that were beheaded and executed, and we see that Nicholas himself was thrown into jail and tortured, yet he did not deny the faith. And because of that, he is what the early church called a confessor. A confessor was someone that was tortured and jailed for their faith, yet they did not deny it. So we also see not only was he benevolent and he gave these anonymous gifts at night, 
But Nicholas was a confessor, and he did not deny the faith despite the fact that he was tortured and imprisoned. In 313, the emperor ruled that being a Christian was legal and that Christians granted, were granted their freedom. And not long after Christians were granted their freedom, in A.D. 325, a huge controversy came to a head. Like the church of any age, there's always issues, right? But this was a pretty big issue. And in 325, the Roman emperor at the time, Constantine, called a special council to settle a dispute within the church. This was the dispute. A man named Arius taught that Jesus was not eternal, that Jesus was not divine, but that Jesus was created and not equal with the Father. As you can imagine, that caused quite a stir. And so the council met and they had to answer this question, should Jesus be worshipped? And can the church worship a created being? Nicholas was one of the over 300 ministers in attendance. In fact, it's believed he was one of the oldest attendees, being around 60 years old, and he being one of the confessors that actually on his body had scars from being persecuted for Christ. If you know the story, the Council of Nicaea overwhelmingly voted that Jesus is in fact God, as told by the Scriptures. One source states that the vote was 318 to 5. We're not so sure about the 318, but we are very sure that there was only five people out of everybody that attended that said Jesus was not God. So this was not a, and within the, the meeting itself was not very controversial. This was overwhelmingly supportive of what the Scripture says, Jesus is God. As some of you know, it's recorded that Nicholas at one point probably slapped or punched one of the heretics. Now, we're not sure if that's true or not, and if it is true, he was disciplined for that unchristian-like action. But that shows you that Nicholas, either way, was committed to what the Bible teaches and that Jesus is fully divine. In fact, we also find that Nicholas affirmed the divinity of Christ and was one of the signers of the Nicene Creed. So we have a man that gave these benevolent gifts in the middle of the night as a young man who was tortured for the faith but did not deny it and upheld the fact that Jesus is fully God as taught by the Scriptures. So why does this matter for you? Well, to be a Christian, you have to believe in Christ. It's not a very controversial statement. But the Bible teaches too be a Christian, you must believe in the true Christ. And that sometimes gets dicey in the modern church. A few years ago, there was a study done, and we first learned of the, the phrase therapeutic moralistic deism, where when we studied the local church in the early 2000s, found that most Christians believe in three things. There is a God. He's not very concerned with what we're doing. And he wants us to be happy. And he wants us to be nice. There's a God. He wants us to be happy. And he wants us to be nice. While not going as far as the health and prosperity gospel, it is a softer, gentler version of that gospel which is not found in Scripture. This group generally believes theology and Scripture are not that important for the church. As long as you believe in a Jesus and are nice and pursue happiness, you're okay. 
But what do you believe this morning? Is the Jesus that you believe in the true and biblical Jesus or the product of your imagination? Because friends, I want to lay before you that believing in the true Jesus matters. It matters for your faith. It matters for how you live your life. It matters for your eternal destiny. We do not need to just be nice and happy. We need to believe in the true Christ. And not just, well, being right is important, but also it is encouraging. It is encouraging when we know the true Jesus, when we see how everything fits together and have the gospel in 3D. So friends, this morning, maybe you say, I've heard this sermon. I heard it two and a half years ago. I can check out. Friend, I want to encourage you not to check out. Because even if you will assent to the fact that Jesus is fully God, I would argue that from this scripture you will be encouraged in your faith when you are able to defend what you believe from the Bible. And the text we get in today is one of the richest texts when it comes to defending the de deity of Christ. As we've already said, Advent means coming. It is the time when the church traditionally celebrates the fact that God came to earth in the form of man. God came to dwell among us, Emmanuel, God with us. But this Advent, we're going to do things a little bit different. Rather than starting in the prophets and working our way towards Luke chapter 2, is traditional and not wrong, is what we've done before, I want us to focus on the person and work of Christ. Why do I want to do that? Because what I have found often is that we have an unbiblical and unbalanced view of Jesus. And some of that comes from our emphasis in the church calendar. Think about it. When we talk about Jesus, what are the two big holidays we celebrate? Christmas and Easter. And those are both good and right. But how do we think about Jesus during Christmas? Well, the sweet little baby in the manger. And how do we think about Jesus in Easter? Well, a broken man dying on a cross. And both those are good and right, but we also, in those emphasis year after year, forget that Jesus is king. Yes, he humbled himself and came to earth as a sweet little baby. And yes, he was broken for our sins on the cross, but he is right now sovereign over the universe. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is prophet, priest, and king. And so my hope this Advent, as we think about the God that came to earth, is that we will have a balanced view, thinking of all of Jesus' attributes. Fully God, perfect humanity, the perfect priest, an all-wise prophet, and the sovereign king. I want you to have a balanced and biblical view of our Jesus this Advent season. In this first Sunday of Advent, foundationally, starting with the fact that Jesus is truly God. Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1. The Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle John, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That light shines into the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, be with us in the next few minutes as we examine your word to see who Christ is. God, give us all eyes to see. Guard my mouth and guard the ears of these people. Father, glorify yourself. Call the lost to yourself. Encourage the weak and brokenhearted. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we learn five traits of the one who is God and became flesh and took up residence among his people. First, Christ was in the beginning. Second, Christ is the light. Third, Christ is the test that determines who belongs to God's people. Fourth, Christ is the complete expression of God's steadfast loyalty. Fifth, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Five traits of the God who became flesh in this passage. Let's look at the first three chapters to see the first one. In the beginning was the Word. I'm going to stop right there. If you ever run into our, our friends who say that this actually just means that Jesus was a God, you can refute them by the fact that this is a definite article, and this definite article is found in the Greek. The Greek. It doesn't, not the Greek, in the Greek. It doesn't say Jesus was a God. It says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word 
was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In John's Gospel, we see that Christ did not merely exist in temporal history like, say, St. Nicholas, but that Jesus Christ has always been. Eternity past. He is from ancient days, from antiquity, as we read this morning. John begins his account with Jesus' life by saying, in the beginning. Now, where else do we read in the beginning? Genesis, right? So anyone that was familiar with the Old Testament would have immediately perked up and said, in the beginning, and thought of Genesis. Calling to mind when God created the universe, Jesus goes all the way back to eternity past. That Jesus is not just present, but actively involved in creation of the universe. He was there at the beginning. All things are created through him. Not one thing is created apart from Christ. Now as a note, Genesis, the account of creation, is not merely that God created the universe, and then a little bit later, he chose Israel to be his people. But the message of Genesis, what Moses is writing in that book, is that the same God of Israel created the universe. The same God of Israel created the universe through the Word. The Word from eternity past. The Word that now takes up residence with His people in the flesh. The Word that reveals the glory of the Father. Louis Burkhoff writes that Christ's pre-existent sonship transcends the human life of Christ and His official calling as the Messiah. Friends, Christ has always existed. He was not merely adopted by the Father 2,000 years ago. He is not plan B when plan A failed. As Alan said this morning from Genesis 3. We were chosen before the foundation of the world if we are in Christ. And Christ was there when the world was created. The universe was created through the head of the church, the head of God's people, a chosen people from before the foundation of the world. Last year during Advent, we talked about the fact that God is sovereign over Christ's coming. This was not a knee-jerk reaction, as Alan said, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, the fullness of His planned time. And Christ was active when God created the world when he divided light from dark. The second thing we see is that Christ is light. Look with me at verses 4 through 9. In him was life. And that life was the light of men that shines into the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Friends, light and life are highly theological terms here. 
They're not just some sentimentalized terms, right? Like your, your, your IG uh, Instagram comments or something, just talking about light or something of that nature. It's not some quaint saying about life or light, but these are highly theological statements. D.A. Carson says that in the Old Testament, both wisdom and Torah commonly associate with life and light. And here, John is binding the two together. In Christ was life, and that life was the light. Remember Zechariah's prophecy from Luke chapter 1, a passage we went over last year. We read that because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness. It's one of my favorite passages of the Scriptures. Because of God's great mercy, this, this dawn, this, this breaking dawn from on high will shine on those who live in darkness. Jesus is the culminating expression of God's glory, the light who is dawn on a dark and dying world. Darkness has not overcome the light. The darkness John speaks of is not merely the absence of light, but this darkness represents evil that infects creation. Apart from the light of Christ brings, apart from the light that Christ brings, we live in darkness. Apart from the light that Christ brings, we love darkness because our hearts are naturally evil and inclined to sin. Apart from the light of God, we are dead in our sin. But the light dawned. And this is the light that John preached about. You know, when I was in the army, we had to do a lot of land nav in the combat arms. So we'd had to go out and do land navigation. We had our compass and our map and our protractor and our map markers, and we had to go out and find our way all over the countryside and get lost and lose equipment and all of that kind of stuff. And when I was at ranger school, we had to do night land nav, and that was fun really hard to train and associate in the middle of the night. And there was one night land nav course where I was as lost as could be. And I was normally pretty good at land nav, but I couldn't find my place. And I was starting to get kind of anxious and I actually fell into a swamp at one point. And it was kind of cold. And I, and I couldn't figure out where I was. I knew I was in a general vicinity, but I could not find the point that I had to find. And then I saw a light. You know, normally, you have to practice light discipline. You can't look at your map unless you have a red lens, and you have a poncho over you, and you're like down on the ground. But somebody broke discipline and turned on the white light of their headlamp, and I was able to find the point because of that one little light. But what we see in this text is not one little light, but a light that exposes all darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. We have a dawn of light that has shined on who? On all men. This light shines on everyone. It floods the darkness and exposes our sin. This light shines on everyone, the believer and the non-believer. The believer repent and flee to Christ when this light exposes them. But the unbelievers flee from Christ, lest their deeds continue to be exposed. The light of Christ divides. Just as the light divided darkness on the first day, Jesus' advent separates between light and darkness in a spiritual sense. So the third thing we see is that Christ is the test that will determine who belongs to God's people. Look with me at verse 10. He was in the world, 
and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. But of God. Christ was in the world created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. Israel did not accept or receive him. However, some did receive him. And to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be called, what? Children of God. In this passage, John distinguishes between two groups. Those who recognize the incarnate word and those who do not. He came to his own. He came to who? Israel. But they rejected him. The Jewish people, the Old Testament people of God, rejected God in the flesh. Andreas Kossenberger writes in his commentary of John, quote, This means that those Jews who rejected the incarnate word's claim of being God's Messiah thereby forfeited their status of being God's children and instead proved to be one with the larger world of humanity that rejected the light, owing to their alienation and moral darkness. End quote. We see here that they rejected God. Like, like those who rebelled in the wilderness and were swallowed up by the earth, they rejected God and proved themselves not to be God's people. They forfeited their status. Paul makes the same argument in Galatians when he says that the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ. Galatians 3.7 Throughout his gospel, John is calling on us as those who read it to decide on Christ. Is he God in the flesh? Is he who he says he is? And this is a decision with eternal consequences. Faith in Christ is the deciding factor for who's deciding who's in and who's out. Who has the right to be called a child of God, and who is out? Nothing else. Not genealogy, not lifestyle, not political party. Only faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, there are no halfway people of God. There is no one who is born in the church that is halfway there, but not fully there. I pray that all of my children are believers, but being a pastor's kid will not make them a part of the people of God. Neither will any other genealogy or affiliation or lifestyle. There are only those who believe and those who do not. And the people of God are made up of believing Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and nation who trust in Christ. Those who believe in Christ receive his hesed. The fourth thing we find about Christ is that Christ is the complete expression of God's steadfast loyalty. Look with me at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word. 
the creating word, became flesh, became a man, and dwelt among his people. I like what one commentator writes. The Greek word here for dwelt literally means pitched his tent. So God, the one that created everything around us, came and pitched his tent among mankind. How cool is that? God came to earth and pitched his tent among his people, the one and only Son from the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. Christ is the complete expression of God's Hesed. You guys remember when we did Ruth this last summer? And we talked about that word a lot. Hesed. What is Hesed? It is the Hebrew word that denotes God's steadfast love. God's covenant-keeping loyalty. You remember Ruth and her family, they, they go to a, a pagan country, they turn their back on the covenant with God for food, for, for temporal uh, safety. They go for food and all this stuff, and you say, well, you know, humanly speaking, we, we kind of uh, feel sorry for them because they just went looking for something to eat, but they had turned their back on God's covenant and gone to a pagan land. And Ruth lost her sons, lost her husband, and she repents, and she comes back to the covenant community, losing everything. And what do we see? God's steadfast loyalty, his hesed, his love towards Ruth, that her line would not die out, or toward Naomi. Sorry, I got the names wrong there, but you guys, you remember that. Naomi is the one that went, Ruth was the daughter-in-law. But we see God's steadfast love toward Naomi, his covenant-keeping love toward Naomi. And here in this book, we see Christ full of grace, full of truth, as the ultimate expression of God's hesed. God's loving kindness to keep his promises, his mercy to save his people, because we see in the scriptures that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ the ultimate expression of his covenant-keeping loyalty. And the appropriate response to God's hesed is acceptance and belief in Christ. Sometimes people will say in our culture, well, well why can't there be multiple ways to God? Why, why, if this is your way, why can't I do my way? Or why does it have to be your way or the highway? Friends, friends, when you reject God's sent one, the ultimate expression of God's hesed, that is a deeply personal matter to God. It is a serious rejection of a relationship with the Creator Himself, and this is not a small matter. It doesn't matter what you and I may think. This is what God has said. This is the way it will be in His ultimate expression of His love is in his son. And to reject Christ is to reject the creator. Because as we see, Jesus is God. Look with me at verse 15, and we'll see fifth, Christ is the image of the invisible God. <clears throat> Starting in verse 15. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. 
Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So a lot in these verses. We'll draw out a few things. First, we see that John the Baptist claims that Jesus ranks ahead of him, even though John is likely about six months older than Jesus. And he says that Christ ranks ahead of him because he is preexistent. He said he ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Remember, Christ is eternal. Christ claims later on in the book of John that before Abraham was, I am. Imagine saying that in the first century to a Jewish person, a Jewish priest or a religious leader. Abraham is like the patriarch. He is the guy in Judaism. And this guy says, Jesus says, before he was, I am. Not only is he claiming to exist before the patriarch, but he says, I am, ego ami in Greek. Remember Moses in Exodus? Tell them, The great I am, I am sent you. I am is a divine name for Christ and saying I am is a divine claim that Jesus is making. John testifies to this, this word made flesh from ancient days, from antiquity, existing before John. Look at 16 and 17. Indeed, we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth truth through Jesus Christ. As the one God gave the law through, Moses held great esteem in Israel's mind. The law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. Again, a sign of the Father's hesed. Remember Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, where we read that Moses was a, what, faithful servant in God's house, but Jesus is the faithful son over God's house. We see both there and here that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is superior to Moses, for he is the faithful son, the divine son, the one through whom grace and truth come. Lastly, look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. We read that the Word is simultaneously God and with God. And that makes our human minds melt sometimes, trying to, trying to figure that out. But we're not supposed to figure that out. We're supposed to allow that tension to be there. But what we do see is that no one has ever seen God. Remember, Moses asked to see God's glory. And the Lord causes his goodness to pass in front of Moses, but Moses is not allowed to see God's face. We read that there is a barrier that has kept human beings from seeing God, and that barrier is now broke in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in John 14, 9, Jesus will say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John declares that the incarnate word has made the Father known. D.A. Carson says the word used here for making him known is the same Greek word we get our word exegete from. 
So we might say, and Carson says, that one might say Jesus is the exegesis of God. In this verse, we can say that Jesus is the ultimate disclosure of God because he himself is God in the flesh. Herman Bovink writes that according to Scripture, in Christ, the Word became flesh, who was in the beginning with God and himself God. At all times and from all sorts of directions, the deity of Christ has been denied and opposed, but Scripture teaches no other doctrine. The Bible tells us that Jesus is over everything. Ephesians 1.22, everything is subjected under Christ's feet. 1 Corinthians 15.27-28, everything has been put under Him. Everything is subject to Christ. The Bible teaches that Jesus is creator and sustainer. Hebrews 1.2 claims that the universe was made by Christ. Colossians 1.16 says that everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. The Bible teaches that Jesus is over the angels, because which one of the angels do we read in Hebrews 1? Did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Jesus bears the divine name in Philippians 2, 9 we read that Christ has been given a name above all names, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In Romans 10, 13, we read that everyone who calls upon the name of Christ will be saved. The Bible states that Jesus is worshipped as God. Paul wrote in Romans that Christ, who is God over all, be praised forever, and amen. And when we read Revelation 5, friends, when we read Revelation 5, and we see that Christ, the Lamb who was slain, was worshipped in the same way as the Father, and that the heavenly multitude is singing, worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, and that all of heaven bows before the Lamb, and that the elders cast their crowns down, friends, we, how can we ever come to any other conclusion that the Jesus is God? When do we ever worship anything created? You cannot read the Bible, friends, and come to any other conclusion but that Jesus Christ is truly God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with Jesus being truly God, there are two messages that I want you to hear this morning to two different groups of people. In the first group of people, this message is to the unbeliever. Friend, you must believe on Christ. You must. Are you the person that gets angry when confronted by the teachings of Scripture? Last week we read that a Christian doesn't gossip. A Christian doesn't use potty mouth words. A Christian doesn't do these things. They are commands to God's people. Does that make you angry? Do you find yourself Wanting to explain away God's commands? Do you find yourself making light of God and His attributes? Are you the one that thinks it's funny on Talladega Nights when they talk about the sweet little baby Jesus that is like Leonard Skinner and homeless people? Do you find that funny? To mock God? 
friend, are you the person that thinks that the, the commands of the Bible are not that important and we just need to be happy and nice? Are you the one that gives lip service to the commands of Christ? Friend, if that is you, you must repent and believe the gospel. I will not mince words here. You have no hope if you do not hope in Christ and see that lived out in your life. Because Jesus Christ, the one from ancient days, the one from antiquity, came to earth in human flesh. 2,000 years ago, the fullness of time, in God's plan, he came forward to crush the head of the serpent. And he walked the life that no one else has ever walked or could ever walk. And he was crushed for our sins. It pleased the Father to crush him for our sins on the cross. And he was buried in a tomb, the tomb of a known man in the first century. And after three days, that tomb was found empty. And then Christ appeared to over 500 people in the flesh, ate fish. They felt his wounds. Thomas cried what when he saw Christ? My Lord, my God. Affirming Christ's deity and his resurrection. And then Christ ascended to the Father's right hand where he currently sits. And we wait for his second advent, his second coming. Friend, you must believe on this Jesus. You must believe this Christ. You say, Pastor, aren't you just being overly emotional? It's not really that important. The Bible says it's deathly important. God's word says it's deathly important. If you reject his hesed, his steadfast loyalty, friend, you will be held accountable on the day. And if you reject his hesed, he will be pleased to crush you on that day. Repent and believe the gospel. Second, a message to the believer, friend, hope in Christ. Hope in Christ. I cannot promise you a life of happiness. I cannot promise you a life of wealth. That your political desires will come true or that society will look like your idealized dream. But I can say this with all authority, that Jesus Christ is truly God. He is Lord of all. He reigns from heaven, and he is the source of true joy. When Nicholas was in prison, being tortured, he wasn't living his best life now. But he did not deny the faith. Because Christ is better than silver and gold. He will not go to the grave with his plans like your favorite politician, but he will reign forever and his plans will come to pass and all of his followers will live in paradise for eternity with him where he himself is the light. He is our hope. Be encouraged. Hope in Christ this morning. Seeing that Christ is fully God, friends, let us cast out all unworthy thoughts this morning. Friends, seeing that Christ is the Word incarnate, let us place Him at the highest level of our hearts and reject any idols. Let's cleanse our heart of idols this Advent season. This Christmas season, as we read about God who became flesh, may we more confidently, with the whole of our lives, trust in Christ.
because his hands are the only able ones. Let us turn our hearts to our King, the divine King, and hope in him. Father, we praise you today for Jesus Christ. God, the true Christian can't read these words without our hearts pounding out of our chests. That you would send forth your Son for us. God, I pray for those hearing my voice right now, sitting in this room who have never trusted in Christ, that you would be gracious and merciful to them. That you would call them to yourself, for we know that your sheep hear your voice. Call them even now. Grant them repentance. That they would turn from their sin and self and and all the idols of this world, God, and cast themselves on Jesus Christ. And for those who are in Christ, God, may we be encouraged. May we be heartened. May our hope be in Him alone. And may we kill the sin and idols in our lives. All for His sake, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.